Well, many of you might know that I spent a bunch of summers down at Canacook camps, and what you might not know is that I worked for a director there that quite possibly, well, he was famous for being one of the most competitive guys you've ever seen in your life. Um, he, uh, every day we had about two hours to play basketball, and it was uh, intense to say the least. And so I'm pretty sure our director hired guys based on their application of how many years of basketball experience they had. Um, but he, and he was one heck of a basketball player. He was also extremely competitive, and so he hated to lose and oftentimes refused to lose. Okay, if you know what I mean by that, when the game was tight and his team needed some momentum, he was that guy that would say, hey, you traveled, our ball. <laughs> or he would, if you were anywhere remotely close to out of bounds, you're out of bounds, you stepped out, it's our ball. Um, he was that guy that would do whatever it took to win. Um, maybe, maybe you didn't play basketball. Maybe, maybe it translates better to the family gathering card game when grandma inserts some new rule or some obscure rule that just happens to play in her favor. Um, we can, as we're continuing on this morning in the Sermon on the Mount series, this passage in Matthew 5 that we're looking at, we're going to see the scribes and the Pharisees be guilty of changing the rules. In a similar way, they, they reduced the meaning of the law, even the demands of the law, in order to feel good about themselves. Last week, Tim shared that Jesus came to fulfill the law, that though he was perfect, he was obedient to the law. And he used this analogy, as hard as it was for him to muster up a chance to talk about KU, he, he, he used James Naismith as an example. He said, hey, look, if James Naismith stepped on a basketball court today, even though he's the guy who wrote the rules, created the game, he would be subject to the rules of the game. Well, I'll tell you one thing for certain this morning. Um, if James Naismith stepped onto a bas- an NBA basketball court this, today, he would gather all the officials and all the players and say, hey, guys, look, this is a travel. <laughs> he would pull them together and he would clarify the rules a little bit and say, hey, it's why I created the pivot foot. You don't just get to walk around. But this is what Jesus is doing in this passage. This morning starts a run of six statements that Jesus makes to clarify the law, to give the true representation of the law to its people given by God himself. So he introduces each of these by saying, well, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And we're going to look at those this morning. Uh, If you got your Bibles, uh, we're going to read it together. Matthew 5, verses 21 through 26. Let's just see what God has to say here. Jesus says, You heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there at the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. (coughs) Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So what the scribes and Pharisees had done is they had reduced the law. They had reduced it by adding to it. 
You can read the actual law in Numbers chapter 35. It's verses 30 and 31. It's pretty straightforward. Hey, look, if you murder, you die. And what the Pharisees did was they added this statement, whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And that judgment is the local court. So judgment, they've taken the judgment out of God's hands and put it into humans' hands. And at that, they'd weaken the importance of the law that there is a, God has a high value on life, on human beings. So they removed God's judgment and they made it something that they could easily attain by simply saying, hey, I didn't murder anybody. I'm good. So what does all this mean? Last week, we said that the heart of the Father is greater than the letter of the law. And this morning, Jesus gets specific you know, rather than talk about the externals of how you achieve it, he's talking about the internals within you and I. The external would be pretty simple, don't murder. The internal is a little bit more complicated, and so Jesus reveals his heart by talking about three things. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Your heart, your worship, and your community. Jesus explains in each of these that Look, the letter of the law says, do not murder. But the heart of the Father says, I want your heart at peace. The good news in this is that the righteousness that we find in Christ Jesus is not about the external. But it's about the inward transformation that happens within you and I. That that freedom is found within a heart at peace. So in verse 22, Jesus reveals the heart of the Father for your heart. He says, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. And just to clarify, that judgment is the judgment of God, not the local court. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So for us as Christians, to feel hatred in our hearts, according to Jesus, is to be guilty of something that in the sight of God is murder. To hate to feel bitter, to have this unpleasant, uh, unkind feeling of resentment towards another person is murder. Jesus knows and understands this pertaining to our heart. He says, followers of Jesus experience true freedom only in a heart of peace. It's only there do we truly find freedom. So I want to show you as much as I can and as best I can how desperately God loves you and is for you. Seems like an odd text to see that in, but this is what he says. He says, hey, if you murder somebody, of course, you're going to be judged for that. But I would rather have you just have the freedom not to walk in that anger all the time, to not live in a place where that anger could lead to that someday, that some outburst could actually end up with you choking somebody out. God takes anger really seriously. I think that's why he compares it to murder. Two things that stand out to me in scripture um, about why God is so serious about anger is this. First, if we allow anger to grow and fester in our heart, we give the devil a foothold in our life. Ephesians 4, 26 and 27 says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. If you just track through scripture, we know what we know about our enemy is that he is a thief that comes to steal, kill, and destroy. 
that he's looking to devour you and I. He's the father of lies, and he excels at lying to us and getting our hearts to believe that is true. Now, maybe you caught this, maybe you didn't, but real quick, you might be asking yourself, gosh, Tay, didn't you say there's no room for anger in your heart, but now the scripture in Ephesians 4 says, be angry? I'm just real quickly going to try to address this. There are really two angers in the Bible. There is a righteous anger, and there is a hatred anger. Righteous anger is God's anger towards sin. He is just and completely fine in that. It is his space to be hate, angered, angered at sin. For you and I as believers, righteous anger looks a little different. Okay, we can be angry at sin. I think it's the phrase that everybody knows is love the sinner, hate the sin, which is really hard in itself to do. But here's the thing I want to point out. If you, if you feel like you're angry, that righteous anger should look a lot like you not being angry. That righteous anger is blessing those who persecute you. That righteous anger is praying for those who you are angry with or who, who is angry with you, all the while doing good to them. So righteous anger for you and I doesn't look like us being much of any anger at all. Um, this morning, we're going to talk and focus our time on the hatred anger, the negative anger. Uh, Ephesians 4 says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil a foothold. Don't give him the opportunity. So what happens when, when we let anger fester and grow in our heart is we begin to assume the worst. And when we assume, we fill ourselves with lies of hate, anger, bitterness, jealousy, pride. What we do is we become experts at people's weaknesses and we get blind to their strengths. And we get so focused on those things that it ends up happening is when we get into an argument, we start using the words like, you always, or you never. And in those moments, nowhere are you ever overstating in an argument when you use those two words. It's easy to justify our anger by our assumptions. It's easy to feel like we are right when our assumptions are leading us. Um, when you start to believe your assumptions, you begin to elevate your strengths over everybody else's weaknesses. And you know what? Every time you win. Every time you win. It just fuels that rage within us. So to be serious about anger is to pay attention to not giving the enemy a foothold in your life. It causes a lot of problems for us. Here's the second reason why I think God's so serious about anger in our lives. If we allow anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, resentment, and that jadedness to, to exist in our lives, not only do we give the devil a foothold, but we also destroy ourselves and those around us. Um, Hebrews 12 Verses 14 and 15 says, strive for peace with everybody. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. By it, many become defiled. What's interesting about that analogy in that scripture is that roots are underneath the surface, right? And so what he says when he references root of bitterness, he's referring to something that's not visible, but it lies within each of us. We all have our roots we're all human beings. 
everybody has the potential to fuel that anger and bitterness and frustration in our hearts. And what he's saying is be careful about those roots because when they do spring up, anger can work itself out in a thousand different ways. You know, for some people, they explode when they're angry. For some, withdraw. Others pout. Sometimes it manifests itself in tears. A thousand different ways it shows up, but it affects more than just you. The Bible just said, watch your roots. Because if you let bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, hatred root itself in your life, and you start to allow those things to supply nutrients through those roots to your body, what happens when it surfaces, those emotions and feelings in your heart explode. And it affects, not only, not only destroys you, but it destroys those around you. Now, here's the thing. Are we all going to experience hurt, frustration, bitterness, anger? Yeah. Man, we, we're human beings. We're going to face it. We're going to experience that. It's a broken world. But the thing for me is that when I am wounded... I don't want to drag my wife into that wound. When I'm angry, I don't want to allow my anger to affect the joy and zeal for life that my girls have. So Jesus lays it out for us. He says, we've got to deal with anger in our hearts and address it with urgency. He says, so yeah, yeah, the, the letter of the law says do not murder, but the heart of the Father says, I want your heart at peace. In verses 23 and 24, he shifts from our heart to our worship. Jesus responds to this by saying so, and that so is important because it connects what he just said. When he talks about these things being so detrimental to your soul and having the ability to not only affect you but those around you, he says so, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift before the altar. And go, first be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. This is the first opportunity that we really get to really reflect the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Well, what we do about our actions affect other people is the first opportunity we have for it. Jesus says about our worship that followers of Jesus are to first go and then come. In this scenario, somebody is angry at you. Jesus is so serious about how we interact with one another on this anger deal that he says, hey, if you come to me in worship and there remember that your brother has something against you, you press pause on worship and you go and make it right. You go and be reconciled to your brother. And I know that that is hard. In a day and age where we can hide like we can today, where if we don't want to come to church, we could just listen to a message online. Or if we don't want to come go to work, we could just work from home. There's so many opportunities to hide today that we need to be able to handle and address this quickly. We need to be able to work at reconciliation. It's necessary for us. I realize that I think this is important for us as I've thought through this. We have to recognize this, that most of the time when we experience hurt and anger and, and whatnot, it's at the mouths and actions of other believers when it affects us the most. I don't know if it's just that we have higher expectations for each other as believers, but oftentimes when a coworker that's a non-believer or we experience somebody that just comes down on us or betrays our trust that's a not a believer, we deal with it easier than when we experience that within the body of Christ. 
it seems easier when someone betrays us outside the church body, but when it happens in the church body, we are affected greatly by it. And I think this is why Jesus lays this out for us. If you're coming in your worship and you forget, you remember that somebody has something against you, gosh, leave what you're doing. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Because not only is your worship valuable to me, but the worship of the body is valuable to me. And disunity cannot exist there. I think overall, LCF does a really great job of this. Um, you know, we are a highly relational church. We care a lot about each other in that way. Um, but I think I'd be remiss if I, said, if I didn't say this. If you're at this service because you're trying to avoid somebody at another service in, in our church, that's a problem. Take it even a step farther. If you're at LCF because you're trying to avoid somebody at another church, that's a problem. And it's a problem for your soul. Like, we love you. We want you to be here. We want to walk alongside you through whatever that is. But recognize that that is important to God. That just stepping into a different service doesn't fix what's wrong. We've got to address it. We've got to be able to work through that towards reconciliation. God puts the onus on us. You know, if someone's angry at you because of your sin or even because uh, of something that you did, it was just a mistake. There's been plenty of times where people have been upset with me and angry with me simply because I was doing something dumb. I, didn't, I wasn't intentionally trying to hurt them. I wasn't intentionally trying to make them mad at me. My actions just, oops, you know, I, I just, I screwed up. And so we have, to, we have to own at times more than what we need to. Sometimes we have to go farther and own more than we need to in order for the relationship to be reconciled. I think owning it means confessing, discussing with each other, having an open conversation. Owning it means an apology, offering an apology with no expectation of anything in return. That's hard. But God says that this matter is so vital, he wants you to interrupt your prayer, your worship, your offering, in order to be right with your brother. First go, and then come. I, I don't remember who, who I read this from, but it, it, it challenged me a lot um, in this idea of owning more than we have to. We've got to remember this. Christ owned more than he had to for you and I. He saved you when you weren't bringing anything to the table, when I was not bringing anything to the table. He owned it, he took it, he absorbed it, and because he did, not only am I reconciled and you are reconciled before God, but we are seen and clothed in righteousness of Christ. Jesus, again, points to our heart and says, it's time in your worship. I want your heart at peace. Yeah, the letter of the law says don't murder. That's easy to attain, but I want your heart at peace. The final one, your community, worship and community are really tightly close together. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus addresses, he says, come to terms quickly with your accuser. Own more than you have to. Followers of Jesus, we are to address conflict quickly. The urgency in which we are to be able to seek reconciliation with each other is paramount to the health of the church. Jesus says, come to terms quickly. And the best way that we can proactively handle anger, frustration, bitterness is to address it quickly, to talk about it. God's invitation is for us to keep laying it down. You know, I, I, as I thought about this, like, there are a lot of times where we experience gaps with people. Whether it's we have an expectation and they don't meet it and all of a sudden there's a gap. 
or whether they said, hey, I will do this, and then they didn't do it. There's a gap all of a sudden. And in those moments, what we do is we fill it with assumptions, which breeds that feeling of frustration and anger and bitterness. And what we should be doing is actually trusting the other person to be able to go to that person and address it quickly. We don't trust that person, and we don't trust that God is working in those gaps. There are a lot of moments in life where God is teaching us through those gaps. But the best thing God, we can do is God says, address it quickly. The gaps are going to happen. So whether, whether it's you going to the other person because you've experienced the gap, or whether it's allowing someone to come to you because of something that you did created the gap, go to each other humbly, gently, and in love, address it quickly. The passage this morning ends with Jesus saying, you, you will be put in prison. If you don't do these things, you're going to be handed over to the judge, the judge over to the guard, and you're going to be put in prison. He says, truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. I can speak to this directly in my own life, and I've debated sharing this for about two weeks, but I felt that the Lord could use, the, use this story in my life. I was in my own prison of hatred, of anger, of bitterness. It wasn't until I let go was I released from that prison, until I sought out reconciliation with those that I was hurt, that I was let go from that. So when he says, you're going to be there until you pay the last penny, the reality is the last penny isn't paid until you own it, until you step forward and say, I've got to take the change. I've got to make the change. It was my anger, my assumptions, my frustrations that kept me there. It was my first full-time job in youth ministry. Um, I had agreed to go on, and I was there for two years. I committed to two years, and the reality was I was actually told that I was going to this place because within six months to a year, I was going to be replacing the guy that was there. Well, the problem was he never left. He stayed there for three years, and we worked together, and we were the complete opposite of each other. Like, you couldn't find two more opposite people. I mean, if you asked us to do the same task, we would go in two complete opposite directions to get to the same goal. We just had a hard time. We struggled to work together. We fought a lot. Um, it just was a challenge. And so at the end of the two years, I was supposed to renew my contract for another year. And I wanted to for two reasons. There were a group of senior, a group of guys that were going to be seniors that next year that I had been discipling for the last two years, and I wanted to walk out with them. I had some great relationships with them, and I, there were some really neat things that God was doing, and I wanted to finish it with them. The second was I'm, I had met my future wife. As good or bad as that was, you can decide. I, I wanted to stay because I had met Kelsey. So I showed up to this board meeting, and I shared that I wanted to come back for another year and was immediately asked to leave the room that they wanted to discuss some things with my coworker. Well, the meeting was at my house, and so <laughs> I, I walked over to our office and sat in our office for two hours. The board meeting ended. The board members all left. No one said anything to me. My coworker walked into the office, grabbed his stuff, said very little, and walked out the door. I had no idea what was going on, and my assumptions were running wild. And... For one month, I didn't get an answer. For one month, every week, I called our board member saying, hey, what's going on? And I wouldn't get an answer. Until finally, I was told to come to a meeting, but I just needed to be there. I didn't know with who or why. 
I show up to this meeting and there were four guys, or kind of the four main guys on our board, and our, one of the directors from our national office. And what unfolded was that the house was divided, the board was divided. Some of them liked me, some of them really disliked me. The ones that really disliked me were the ones in that room. And in that moment, they unfolded that they just didn't like me. They didn't really like the way I did ministry. They didn't like my personality. They didn't like the way I approached ministry. They didn't think I was very committed to the ministry. But if I was willing to work on those things, I could come back. I can tell you in that moment, well, for whatever reason, I came back. I chose to come back. But in that moment, I want you to know it crushed me. I was so angry. I was so bitter and frustrated that I came into that next year going, I'm going to prove them wrong. I'm going to show them that they're the ones that are being foolish. And all it did was make me limp through the next year. It was, it's, that meeting started the two worst years of, of ministry and life that I've, I've had. They were hard. Um, I don't know what broke. Maybe it was just me that I, I finally mustered up enough courage to, um, well, let me, I, I didn't finish my story, sorry. So I left. I left, I left the ministry, and I was done with ministry. I was burnt out. I was hurt. I didn't want to serve in any capacity. It wasn't that I was done with my relationship with the Lord, but I was just done with ministry. And the next year, I started a construction company. And literally over that next year, I just had arguments in my head every day with my coworker, with my, those board members. Literally at one point, I found myself up on a ladder halfway up the side of a house, putting siding on a house, and the argument, argument that was going on in my head verbally came out of my mouth, and I was yelling at the wall. <laughs> it seems kind of funny, but it, it is a picture of how ugly my heart was in that moment. I was angry at God for putting me there. I was angry at the ministry. I was just done. And what happened was my ministry, like my, my worship, you know, it wasn't that I was done with my relationship with the Lord. I was going to church, but my worship was empty. My, my time listening to the message and challenge there was, was empty. Um, I had no community. All, the only community I had was my wife, and all I did to her was bring her down in my anger. Um, I don't know what did it. I think I just broke uh, my brokenness. I just couldn't handle it anymore. And so I finally mustered up and I wrote a letter to my coworker, to those board members, about five page handwritten each, owning far more than I had to, uh, apologizing, explaining my actions and apologizing for them. But what I realized was I needed the forgiveness. I needed that freedom of forgiveness, and I really needed the heart at peace. If you hear nothing else, God longs so much for you, for your heart to be at peace this morning. So yeah, the letter of the law says, do not murder, but the heart of the Father says, I long for your heart to be at peace. I want to invite the worship team um, back up front and... I want to take a moment. If you would just close your eyes, bow your heads.